Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Schaefer's Market Mashup. This is possibly the last market mashup of 2020. Let's finish strong and get right to it. Volatility, ever present and can change at the drop of a hat. So obviously we all remember early to mid-February, how we all felt about life and stocks in general. And then come March, a month later, the S&P 500 lost a third of its value due to the pandemic. Today, I'm joined by Scott Phillips, Lavaca Capital's founder and chief investment officer. Scott, welcome. Thanks, Patrick. Good to be here. And I also have Matt Moran, head of Index Insights at Siebel Global Markets. Matt, welcome. Thank you, Patrick. And today, we're going to discuss how traders can use options as a tool to empower our inner Warren Buffett, who has the famous quote of it's to be fearful when others are greedy and greedy when others are fearful. want to set the stage first by explaining the difference between a risk-on and risk-off environment to our listeners. And I know Matt and I were talking about this before we aired. 2020 is tricky. You know, the, the growth stocks were doing well while the value stocks underperformed, which is sort of the inverse of what the risk-on and risk-off environment implies. And then, of course, there's been rotations within the year. Matt, can you start to unpack that for our listeners just to start off? Sure. Well, if, if we're talking about the question of risk on versus risk off, in 2020, it's not maybe not quite as crystal clear as you might expect. In that, certainly, if you talk about risk on, what I think about and reading about risk on, you're talking about a situation where investors have an aggressive uh, growth-oriented um uh, feelings about the market, whereas in a risk-off environment, you're talking more about more of fear in the market and more of a focus on safe havens. So what do we have this year? Well, you had a situation where the market early in the year was starting to go up, but then uh, concern about COVID basically hit worldwide. And by March, you had a situation where the SIBO volatility index, ticker symbol VIX, very, very well known, it's all-time daily closing high of 82.69. Um, that was in March. And certainly you could say, well, that's got to be a risk-off environment. There's got to, People have got to be fleeing for safe havens. But what you did see in subsequent months was people were looking at different sectors and different opportunities. And certainly um, different, different sectors, different industries out there did perform in very different ways in that energy was weighed down. But you did have some tech stocks and whatever actually not not uh, actually doing pretty well. And so you could say, well, uh, it depends on what sector you're talking about. But certainly we did have we have had an interesting year in terms of the risk on and risk off uh, attitude of investors. Mm-hmm. It's hyperbole sometimes to say, it, but this this year has been so crazy as far as what to expect. It's, it's always worth breaking it down a little bit more. Scott, do you have anything to add? Yeah, certainly. So, you know, to us, it just it all comes down to investor expectations and what uh, what we're actually seeing price wise uh, in the various assets uh, that trade globally. So, you know, Matt mentioned a bid to 
to safe haven assets, you know, typically a risk off environment would be marked by something like that, where you have a bid to treasuries, a uh, bid to uh, to uh, to those global uh, government type securities, uh, particularly in the U.S. Uh, they kind of mark a traditional risk off environment. Uh, you know, fast forward that towards more of the uh, more of the um, the volatility side of things. And as Matt mentioned, you can see that present in the VIX, right? So Matt mentioned uh, the volatility index, uh, the VIX of the S and P 500, uh, and what that is uh, what that is particularly doing, and how quickly that's changing. Um, and so you can look at a, a VIX of 85, as Matt mentioned, and certainly say that that would mark somewhat of a, a risk-off environment. Uh, but high volatility doesn't necessarily, at least expressed in high VIX terms, doesn't necessarily mean a, uh, a risk-off environment. So fast forward to uh, the most recent month where, by historical standards, uh, the VIX was still elevated uh, in the period of November, but we had one of the strongest uh, equity performances in quite a while. Uh, and so, you know, that pairing between what the volatility index is doing, what uh, all the other asset classes are doing in terms of price movement, uh, that to us really helps define uh, what a risk-on or a risk-off environment may be. Okay, that makes sense. I'll I'll stick with you here. Is it as easy as considering a period of high volatility strictly when the VIX is above 20? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, You know, I would say if this was 2017, Certainly, a VIX of 20 would mark a higher, uh, higher volatility regime, and I think that you need to break it down uh, by different time periods to kind of look into what high volatility, low volatility, average volatility really is uh, within those different uh, quote-unquote volatility regimes. So historically, over the full uh, Matt, what was it, 1990, 1992, that the VIX launched? The data on the VIX go back to January of 1990. Right. So back to 1990, January 1990, if you look over that full period, the VIX has averaged about 19. Uh, we've certainly had periods much lower than that and much higher than that. Uh, the most recent uh, March period being the highest VIX level ever. Uh, and like I mentioned, 2017, I believe we had the lowest VIX reading ever in 2017. Uh, but it historically has an average of around 19, uh, and it has a... a, a uh, a range that it typically moves in of plus or minus eight points. So if you look at the standard deviation uh, of the VIX movement, including all of these outlier events, which certainly skew some of the data, mm-hmm. uh, the VIX typically moves plus or minus eight points from that that, that twenty point or that twenty uh, or nineteen average. And so when we think about you know what's a higher volatility regime, I think you got to dial in to uh, the different time periods that you're looking at because. You know, this year, 20 isn't a high VIX, right? That isn't necessarily right. a high volatility regime. Uh, but in 2017, it may have been uh, uh, for that period. Uh, and then also look at that in the greater context uh, of the overarching uh, time period of that full uh, full history. Uh, and you can even utilize some of the S&P price movement and go back and extrapolate what the VIX would have been, say, on Black Monday, right, or what realized volatility would have been on, on Black Monday back in 87. And, uh, and and really begin to get a better picture of what is considered, quote-unquote, high volatility. Yeah, that's very helpful. Matt, do you want to expand on that? Yes, well, 
you might say, well, high volatility, low volatility, VIX is above its long-term average. That's all nice, but how does this impact investors? And I would say this, that if you were in a higher volatility regime, let's say where VIX is around 30, Mm -hmm. well, you have a situation where at least for some investors, they might go to risk off, where they might say, I'm going to look at safe haven investments. Well, the challenge you have right now, though, is if you're looking at safe haven investments like treasuries, for example, the interest rates on those treasuries are extremely low. Mm -hmm. And you could say, well, actually, maybe that really isn't that safe in that if these interest rates are so low and there is the risk of the interest rates eventually going up, maybe you could even lose money on these treasuries. But anyway, it's not a great place to be, uh, arguably. So what are the alternatives if VIX is high? Well, another thing to keep in mind, though, if the VIX is high, uh, if you if you were to go out and sell index options, for example, there is the possibility of generating more option premium. And for example, at SIBO, we do have several benchmark indexes. And for example, we have the well-known BXM buy right index, and that goes out and sells one month options, sells one month, 30 day at the money, that's BX options. And our research does show that, for example, if you go out and write the options when VIX is around 10, you're only generating about 1% per month, which comes out to about 12% per year gross premium. So that's pretty good. Yeah. But if the VIX is at 30, you're generating about 3% per month. So you're talking to over 30% per year in gross premiums. Now, I, I do want to stress, I'm talking just gross, not necessarily net. Obviously, the premiums you generate on an option writing strategy are all positive. Mm-hmm. It is possible, particularly in a bear market, that your your option writing position could actually uh, take a drop. But anyway, the whole idea of generating more options premium with option selling strategies in times when VIX is high can be pretty appealing and, and in my mind could be certainly considered by investors who are, are concerned about this low interest rate environment right now. I, I want to run with that a little bit and help me understand what is going on when volatility is rising. We know the price of an option is affected, of course, uh, but there's more to it than that. And I'm thinking of the Greeks, which I've been in this business now for three years and I'm only just starting to understand. So Scott and then Matt, unpack that a little bit more for me. Certainly. Yeah, so there's different pricing components that make up the overall price that you see uh, listed there on your screen when you're buying or selling an option. Uh, Those are what's known as the Greeks, uh, and there are various first and second derivative uh, Greeks uh, that affect that option price. So go back to your calculus days a little bit here. Uh, we, you first mentioned volatility, uh, being, uh, impactful to the overall pricing of an option, and that's certainly true. Uh, that Greek is called Vega, uh, and Vega is, uh, the amount that an option price will change based on a one point change in the underlying, uh, uh, volatility of that instrument. Uh, so if a option has a Vega of 20, uh, and the uh, and the volatility rises uh, one, then you would have that corresponding uh, change, uh, or I should say, twenty percent uh, uh, corresponding change to the overall option price. So when we see periods of higher volatility, we get higher prices and options. Mm-hmm. When we see periods of lower volatility, we see lower prices and options. And so there's a, a direct impact uh, by that uh, by that amount of. Uh, of volatility change to the overall price. 
Uh, other Greeks that you may be familiar with would be Delta, uh, Gamma, uh, and the like. There's there's several others that that I could go into, but those those uh, Theta being uh, kind of the fourth one. Those four would be the four major. Just to break them down a bit more, we talked about Vega. Delta would be the the change of an option for a change in the underlying price of the stock. So if you're looking at S&P options, Matt mentioned a $1 change in an S&P option with a uh, delta of 30 would have a change to the option price of 30 cents. Okay. Uh, uh, when we look at gamma, gamma is the change of delta, uh, meaning that uh, for every uh, every change that that market uh, or that underlying instrument changes in price, uh, we reset the delta at those different levels. And so I kind of liken it to driving down the road. Uh, so delta is how fast you're going down the road, uh, while gamma is the amount that you're changing, uh, you're accelerating or decelerating as you're going down the road. I think that gives a pretty good depiction of how your delta changes yes. um, uh, in respect to the option price and the underlying stock price. And then lastly would be theta. Uh, uh, theta is the price or the decay of an option price and how that price that option price will change as time passes. So theta is the time passage component of the option price. Okay. Now, my eyes kind of glazed over after you said go back to your calculus days, but you brought me back <laughs> with the, uh, the the driving analogy, and, and, and that does make a little bit more sense to me. Matt, do you have anything to add? Yes, I'd like to pick up on the, and just one of the concepts that Scott mentioned, theta, or time decay. And I'll put this in uh, hopefully somewhat simple to understand language. When we came out with the BXM buy right index early in this century, a lot of money managers at the time would write options just maybe once a quarter, right? It'd write them four times a year. But then we came out with the BXM index with the whole concept, well, how about writing more frequently? How about writing once a month? And the advantage of doing that, writing 12 one-month options versus four three-month options, is the fact that you are, you are taking advantage, this option seller anyway, is taking advantage of time decay or theta in that time decay or theta uh, helps the option seller the closer you get to expiration. So the thought is that roughly one should collect about twice as much premium writing 12 one-month options as with four three-month options. Furthermore, in recent years, we've come out with weekly options, and certainly managers now are starting to look at that, looking at even shorter uh, time periods. And so, for example, some managers actually do write options multiple times a month. I think some people sometimes suspect, oh, are they just doing that to speculate? It's kind of, no, they're doing it to take advantage of time decay or theta. And we now actually do have an index, WPUT, that does go and write and sells SPX options 52 times a year. And the thought there in general is the fact that the theory is that, well, you write 52 one-week options as opposed to 12 one-month options. Um, The goal there is to generate even twice as much premium as as writing less, less frequently. So anyway... The thought is that if you go out and write more often, that there is potential to generate more gross premium. One warning, though, is the fact that, well, you've really got to, you really should know what you're doing. Some people, I think, would say, well, you should maybe leave this to the professional investors. And certainly you can invest in funds where managers are uh, able to access these, these concepts and these goals. Um, but anyway, theta and time decay certainly is a very interesting concept that more and more option sellers are taking a close look at 
with the idea of generating more options premium. And we do have an index now, W ticker symbol WPUT, again, that writes SPX options once a week, 52 times a year. I want to pivot now over to options strategy. Does a market participant always have to change their strategy when volatility rises? What's a formula or at least some basic guidelines that they should be following to stay in the game? Uh, Scott, you can take that one first and then Matt can finish up. Yeah, I mean, different environments call for different structures. You know, to us, at the end of the day, an investor has to form a thesis, right? You have to have a thesis and you have to make a decision on that thesis of how you're going to express it, right? So if you think that a uh, stock is going to go up, uh, you may look to purchase a call option, right? Uh, very similar, if you think that a stock is going to go down, uh, you may purchase a put option uh, as a way to express that thesis. But everything ties into having a core thesis uh, and a way to express that thesis. What we like about options is that they give you multiple ways to express that thesis. So you can get creative in how you're looking to express that thesis. And you don't have to have just a linear type uh, return profile uh, mm-hmm. to, your, uh, to the strategy that you're using. Um, so, you know, step back to March this year, you know, an investor may have looked at the time period of March uh, as a really extraordinary time period, you know, determining that those 10% daily moves that we were looking at, you know, I think we had one that was over 10%, and I know several uh, in the 7 to 10% range, uh, that those types of moves just weren't sustainable, right? And maybe that investor uh, had purchased a put option to protect their portfolio, sense. Matt, do you have anything to add or do you want to kind of build on some other factors that you are considered for an, an option strategy? You know, I think your question was in regard to what do you do when options volatility rises? Mm-hmm. And this is kind of a key point from my point of view in that 
I believe a lot of investors out there are saying, well, I'm not going to put on protection unless and until the market takes a big fall. Well, one of the challenges right away, though, is the fact that, well, if the market takes a big fall in general, the VIX price is going to go up. And so the cost of your hedging could be quite a bit higher. Mm-hmm. And so if we get back to the statement you mentioned earlier, as far as Warren Buffett said, be fearful when others are greedy and greedy when others are fearful. The problem with buying protection when the market is going down is you're, you're being fearful when others are being fearful, too. And that can be a little expensive. And so... You do want to keep that that principle in mind. You want to keep in mind what your goals are. And if your goal is long-term capital protection and avoiding big drawdowns, you might think about, well, maybe I want, might want to put on some uh, protection when the VIX actually isn't, at, isn't near its all-time highs. And recently, we did have a webinar featuring uh, a major Midwestern endowment that said that, yes, they devote 2% of their allocation to hedging types of strategies with the realization that the vast majority of the time these hedges are not going to pay off but the hope is in years like 2008 and 2020 mm-hmm. that the hedges really can pay off and can help smooth out returns and so again i'd say keep that in mind and um certainly uh, when volatility rises, that does impact the implied volatility, and it does imp- can impact both option buying and option selling strategies, Patrick. Okay, great. Well said. Scott, did you have anything you wanted to expand upon when you were talking about objectives and you know, a little bit more about risk tolerance? Yeah, certainly. You know, Matt brings up some good points here. And, you know, by having that uh that safety net so to say uh in the form of a put option potentially in the example that we're discussing now uh, it really allows an investor to manage their emotions right it's uh you know when we were talking uh talking earlier patrick you know i mentioned kind of the seatbelt analogy mm-hmm. um and it really you know i really kind of liken it to getting in your car and putting on your seatbelt you don't ever want that seatbelt to activate you never want that to be the scenario uh, but it's there just in case, right? And it can be a life-saving type feature in your vehicle, safety feature in your vehicle in the case of an impactful crash or, you know, God forbid something uh, horrendous happening, right? It can really be there to save your life. Same thing of a put option in a portfolio. You never want them to pay off, right? When somebody buys a put option, unless they're speculating, if they're using the hedge it, they don't want them to pay off, right? And all the best worlds, the market goes up. Yeah, they lose the money that they spent on the put premium, uh, but their stocks went up in price, right? And so they they essentially made money that way uh, versus uh, versus uh, the market declining and and that being really impactful uh, and that drawdown being really impactful not only to their financial state but to their emotional state. So if you look, uh, you know, right now of the price of a of a put option out in the four to five month range may run an investor two to three uh, percent when using an out of the money option. Uh, uh, to protect the portfolio. Yes, that is a cost to their portfolio and will be a drag if the market goes straight up between now and that time period. Uh, but it's a safety net for them uh, and it gives them some peace of mind. And just to kind of add to what Matt say, you know, you really want to look to hedge these uh, positions or to, to utilize these uh, when you get the cheap opportunities and then to uh, potentially profit from them uh, when uh, when things get a little bit more dicey. 
Yeah, I, I love that seatbelt analogy. Uh, from a personal standpoint, I, I always like to wear my seatbelt. Don't you want to enjoy a ride knowing that you are safe and secure? Uh, you, you never get a better sleep than knowing that peace of mind. Just It always made sense to me to have that insurance locked in. Uh, another personal example, completely you know out of left field, but I purchased PGA Championship tickets for Kiwa Island uh, back in November for May. And it said, do you, do you want to buy you know, insurance for these tickets because of the pandemic. I said, of course, <laughs> you know, now I have no worries about are they going to allow fans or not. And, you know, that, that peace of mind, I think, is very integral to an investing strategy, especially when it pertains to options. Scott and Matt, I want you both to give the best advice you've received when making capital allocation decisions. Uh, Scott, you can go first and Matt, you can wrap it up. Yeah, I'd say the best advice that I've received is to always protect your downside. Uh, you know, by managing your drawdown risk, you know, we talked about the emotional toll, uh, that a significant drawdown can, uh, can have on an investor. Uh, it, managing that risk, uh, potentially through the use of options can really allow you to emotionally weather that market volatility when things inevitably go away, right? It does seem like more and more so over the past several years, uh, we've had more episodes, uh, not, not maybe to the extent of March. Uh, but we've certainly have uh, had sell-offs that have come uh, by surprise to many investors or caught many investors by surprise. And it really gives you that ability to kind of stay invested, uh, you know, knowing that you have the have that protection on. Uh, you know, the, the well-known secret, I guess, uh, to being consistently profitable is really limiting your downside. Uh, and to us, you know, as, as, as I kind of look at the world, that's exactly what a put option can offer. Uh, certainly it has its own... Uh, uh, implementation challenges, right? An investor needs to know what they're doing when utilizing uh, these instruments. Uh, just don't take me don't you know don't take me wrong. Any of these instruments require a significant amount of of investor education uh, before utilizing them. But an investor is a hand, you know one of these tools at the hands of a well educated, uh, a skilled investor can be a highly highly useful tool uh, in their portfolios. Well said. Well, in conclusion, one of the things I'd like to point out is the fact that Warren Buffett has gone out and actually certainly looked at the idea of collecting premium. He's gone out and bought several insurance companies whose main business is to collect premium. Another thing he's done, though, too, is to go out and sell long-dated OTC index options. He's collected upfront premium of $4 billion dollars. So the whole idea of going out there and selling options, collecting premiums, certainly has been strongly um, endorsed by Warren Buffett, of all people. And at SIBO, we have a lot of resources if you do want to look in this concept more as far as selling options premium, taking advantage of that, taking in some, some premium that can help smooth out returns, generate more income for you. We do have several resources. So the resources would include benchmark indexes such as the BXM and the BXMD buy right indexes and also the PUT put right index. So we've got these indexes out there. Also, in 2020, the Wilshire uh, analytics firm, a firm which has 20, I'm sorry, 1 trillion in assets under advisement, that firm has actually published three different papers on the whole idea of going out there and selling richly priced options premium to help smooth out returns, to hopefully generate some 
good risk-adjusted returns. So there is quite a bit of research out there to help you out when you do try to attack these ideas and try to get a better handle on how can I generate more premium in times of low interest rates. So thank you very much for the opportunity, Patrick. This has been a great call today. Yeah, thanks, Matt. I mean, that that's outstanding. I honestly, I wish we can. I have a thousand more questions for you guys, and I can run a two-hour podcast here. Thanks again, both you guys, Scott Phillips, Lavaca Capital's founder and chief investment officer, uh, down in Houston. Best of luck with those ailing sports franchises. And oh, I had to get the plug in. Yep, had to get one little <laughs> – I forgot in the intro, so I was like, all right, make sure I get the jab in at the end. And then Matt Moran, head of Index Insights of SIBO Global Markets. Matt, I have no qualms with any Chicago teams, so you get off free today. Okay. Um, <laughs> okay. Sounds <but> good. <laughs> thanks again, guys. Uh, you know, hope, Stay safe out there, and hopefully we can maybe – revisit this conversation down the road because like you guys have both said there is so much to talk about here and we're really only just getting started right okay thank you patrick thanks guys yeah, thanks patrick thanks everyone cheers, cheers.